section three of invention and discovery by anonymous this librivox recording is in the public domain the world in a drop of water the microscope has shown that a drop of water though it may appear to the naked eye to be perfectly clear is swarming with living beings according to Ehrenberg, a cubic inch of water may contain more than eight hundred thousand millions of these beings estimating them only to occupy one-fourth of its space and a single drop placed under the microscope will be seen to hold five hundred millions an amount perhaps not so very far from equal to the whole number of human beings on the surface of our globe origin of post-paid envelopes m piron tells us that the idea of a post-paid envelope originated early in the reign of louis the fourteenth with m de valier who in sixteen fifty three established with royal approbation a private penny post placing boxes at the corners of the streets for the reception of letters wrapped up in envelopes which were to be bought at offices established for that purpose m de valier also caused to be printed certain forms of billets or notes applicable to the ordinary business among the inhabitants of great towns with blanks which were to be filled up by the pen with such special matter as might complete the writer's object one of these billets has been preserved to our times by a pleasant misapplication of it pelisson madame de sevigny's friend and the object of the bon mot that he abused the privilege which men have of being ugly was amused at this kind of skeleton correspondence and under the affected name of pisander according to the pedantic fashion of the day he filled up and addressed one of these forms to the celebrated mademoiselle de scudery in her pseudonym of sappho this strange billet-doux has happened from the celebrity of the parties to be preserved and is still extant one of the oldest we presume of penny-post letters and a curious example of a prepaying envelope as well as a new proof of the adage that there is nothing new under the sun character in works telford the engineer relates that he came to london in seventeen eighty two and got employed at the quadrangle of somerset house buildings he soon became known to sir william chambers and mr r adam the two most distinguished architects of that day the former haughty and reserved the latter affable and communicative and a similar distinction of character pervades their works sir william's being stiff and formal and those of mr adam playful and gay brindley the engineer though one of the most successful engineers of his age brindley was so illiterate as to be scarcely able to read or to write by his unrivalled powers of abstraction and memory he often executed his plans without committing them to paper and when he was engaged in any difficult or complex undertaking he was in the habit of retiring to bed where he often remained for two or three days till he had thoroughly completed his design so singular indeed was the structure of his mind that the spectacle of a play in london disturbed to such a degree the balance of its mechanism that he could not for some time resume his usual pursuits reason for silence 
someone asked fontaine the celebrated geometrician what he did in society where he remained almost perfectly silent i study replied he the vanity of men in order to mortify it occasionally ascent of the jungfrau alp in eighteen forty one professor forbes along with m agassi and others made a successful ascent of the great swiss mountain the jungfrau whose summit is thirteen thousand seven hundred and twenty feet above the level of the sea of six travellers and seven guides who formed the party four of each reached the top viz of the former messieurs forbes agassiz de sore and de chutelis of the latter jacob leutvold who ascended the finster arhorn johann jannen melchior balcasor and andreas alpenenop they left the grimsel on the morning of the twenty seventh of august eighteen forty one ascended the whole height of the oberar glacier and descended the greater part of that of Wies. crossing a col to the right they slept at the chalet of aletsch near the lake of that name this was twelve hours hard walking the descent of the glaciers being difficult and fatiguing next day the party started at six a m having been unable sooner to procure a ladder to cross the crevices they then traversed the upper part of the glacier of aletsch in its whole extent for four hours and a half until the ascent of the jungfrau began the party crossed with great caution extensive and steep fields of fresh snow concealing crevices till they came to one which opened vertically and behind which rose an excessively steep wall of hardened snow having crossed the crevices with the ladder they ascended the snow without much danger owing to its consistency after some similar walking they gained the call which separates the aletsch glacier from the rotal on the side of lauterbrunnen by which the ascent has usually been attempted thus the travellers although now at a height of between twelve thousand and thirteen thousand feet had by far the hardest and most perilous part of the ascent to accomplish the whole upper part of the mountain presented a steep inclined surface of what at first seemed snow but which soon appeared to be hard ice this slope was not less than eight hundred or nine hundred feet in perpendicular height and its surface which professor forbes measured several times with a clinometer in many places rose at forty-five degrees and in few much less and all alpine travellers know well that an inclined surface of forty-five degrees is to walk up of course every step taken was cut with the hatchet whilst the slope terminated below on both sides in precipices some thousand feet high after very severe exertion they reached the top of this great mountain at four p m the summit was so small that but one person could stand upon it at once and that not until the snow had been flattened the party returned as they came up step by step and backwards and arrived at the chalets of aletsch and by beautiful moonlight at half-past eleven at night the steam gun in the fifteenth century in eighteen forty one m delacutz discovered among the manuscripts of leonardo da vinci an entry carrying a knowledge of the steam-engine applied to warfare to at least as far back as the fifteenth century 
he has published in the artiste a notice of the life of leonardo to which he adds a facsimile of a page of one of his manuscripts containing five pen-and-ink sketches of details of the apparatus of a steam-gun with an explanatory note on what he designates the architonniere the entry is as follows invention of archimedes the architonniere is a machine of fine copper which throws balls with a loud report and great force it is used in the following manner one-third of the instrument contains a large quantity of charcoal fire when the water is well heated a screw at the top of the vessel which contains the water must be made quite tight on closing the screw above all the water will escape below will descend into the heated portion of the instrument and be immediately converted into a vapour so abundant and powerful that it is wonderful to see its force and hear the noise it produces this machine will carry a ball a talent in weight it is worthy of remark that leonardo da vinci far from claiming the merit of this invention for himself or the men of his time attributes it to archimedes the steam-gun of our time has been an exhibition-room wonder and the prediction of the duke of wellington that it would fail in warfare has never been and is never likely to be tested ancient observatory in persia when sir john malcolm visited moraga he traced distinctly the foundations of the observatory constructed in the thirteenth century for nasir-ud-din the favourite philosopher of the tartar prince hulaku the grandson of genghis who in this locality relaxed from his warlike toils and assembled round him men of the first genius of the age who have commemorated his love of science and given him more fame as its munificent patron than he acquired by all his conquests in this observatory there was according to one of the best mohammedan works a species of apparatus to represent the celestial sphere with the signs of the zodiac the conjunctions transits and revolutions of the heavenly bodies through a perforation in the dome the rays of the sun were admitted so as to strike upon certain lines on the pavement in a way to indicate in degrees and minutes the altitude and declination of that luminary during every season and to mark the time and hour of the day throughout the year the observatory was further supplied with a map of the terrestrial globe in all its climates or zones exhibiting the several regions of the habitable world as well as a general outline of the ocean with the numerous islands contained in its bosom and according to the mohammedan author all these were so perspicuously arranged and delineated as at once to remove by the clearest demonstration every doubt from the mind of the student london as a port sir john herschel who possesses in an eminent degree the peculiar talent of felicitously illustrating every subject that he approaches in his valuable treatise on astronomy thus refers to the situation of london as a port Quote, it is a fact not a little interesting to englishmen and combined with our insular station in that highway of nations the atlantic not a little explanatory of our commercial eminence that london occupies nearly the centre of the terrestrial hemisphere for drignet's paper-making machinery 
on april twenty five eighteen thirty nine some very interesting details of fordrigny's machinery for making paper of endless length were elicited during a debate in the house of commons upon the presentation of a petition from these ingenious manufacturers it appears that a thousand yards or any given quantity of yards of paper could be continuously made by it many years since the invention was patented but owing to a mistake in the patent the word machine being written instead of machines the property was pirated and that led to litigations in which the patentees funds were exhausted before they could establish their rights they then became bankrupts and thus all the fruits of their invention on which they had spent forty thousand pounds were entirely lost to them the evidence of mr brunel and mr lawson the printer of the times proved the invention of the fordonniers to be one of the most splendid discoveries of the age mr lawson stated that the conductors of the metropolitan newspapers could never have presented to the world such an immense mass of news and advertisements as was now contained in them had not this invention enabled them to make use of any size required by the revolution of the great cylinder employed in the process an extraordinary degree both of rapidity and convenience in the production is secured one of its chief advantages is the prevention of all risk of combination among the workmen the machine being so easily managed that the least skilful person can attend to it it was added that the invention had caused a remarkable increase in the revenue in the year eighteen hundred when this machine was not in existence the amount of the paper duty was a hundred and ninety five thousand six hundred and forty one pounds in eighteen twenty one when the machinery was in full operation the amount of duty was five hundred and seventy nine thousand eight hundred and sixty seven pounds in eighteen thirty five it was eight hundred and thirty three thousand eight hundred and twenty two pounds no doubt part of this increase must be set down to other causes still it was impossible but for this discovery that such a quantity of paper could have been made and consumed the positive saving to the country affected by it had not been less than eight million pounds the increase in the revenue not less than five hundred thousand pounds a year at length in may eighteen forty the sum of seven thousand pounds was voted by parliament to measures for denier as some compensation for their loss by the defective state of the patent law there has been made by this machinery at collington mills a single sheet of paper weighing five hundred and thirty three pounds and measuring upwards of a mile and a half in length the breadth being only fifty inches were a ream of paper of similar sheets made it would weigh two hundred and sixty six thousand five hundred pounds or upwards of a hundred and twenty three tons the coconut crab mr darwin in his voyage around the world thus describes a crab which lives upon coconuts and which he found on keeling island in the south seas Quote, it is very common on all parts of the dry land and grows to a monstrous size it has a front pair of legs terminated by very strong and heavy pincers and the least pair by others which are narrow and weak it would at first be thought quite impossible for a crab to open a strong coconut covered with the husk but mr lisk assures me has repeatedly seen the operation effected 
the crab begins by tearing the husk fibre by fibre and always from that end under which the three eye-holes are situated when this is completed the crab commences hammering with its heavy claws on one of these eye-holes till an opening is made then turning round its body by the aid of its posterior and narrow pair of pincers it extracts the white albuminous substance i think this is as curious a case of instinct as ever i heard of and likewise of adaptation in structure between two objects apparently so remote from each other in the scheme of nature as a crab and a coconut descartes wooden daughter when descartes resided in holland he made with great labour and industry a female automaton which gave some wicked wits occasion to report that he had an illegitimate daughter named franchine the object of descartes was to demonstrate that beasts have no souls and are but machines nicely composed that move whenever another body strikes them and communicates to them a portion of its motions having carried this singular machine on board of a dutch vessel the captain who sometimes heard it move had the curiosity to open the box astonished to see a little human form uncommonly animated yet when touched appearing to be nothing but wood and being little versed in science but very superstitious he took the ingenious labour of the philosopher for a little devil and terminated the experiment of descartes by throwing his wooden daughter into the sea astronomical shoemaker when halley's comet was expected in eighteen thirty five a shoemaker of leicester named joseph mills set about tracing the path of the heavenly visitor through the heavens this he did by drawing its orbit upon his house floor from which he made a diagram that more accurately represented the course of the comet than any that had been previously published on being questioned how he had calculated the disturbing forces so as to come so near the truth he replied that he could not tell further than he had performed it by the common rules of arithmetic decline of science in january eighteen forty two a poor fellow was taken before the authorities of paris for begging in the streets he had studied the science of cookery under the celebrated carême and was the inventor of the delicious saumon trouflé à la broche he was in the last garb of want and attributed his poverty to the decline of cookery from a science to a low art it has been observed that cooks in nine cases out of ten after ministering to the luxury of the opulent creep into holes and corners and pass neglected out of the world variable climate of tabriz tabriz is celebrated as one of the most healthy cities in persia and it is on this ground alone that we can account for its being so often rebuilt after its repeated demolition by earthquakes it is seldom free even for a twelvemonth from slight shocks and it is not yet so much as a century since it was levelled to the ground by one of those terrible convulsions of nature sir john malcolm when he visited this place was more surprised at its salubrity from knowing the great extremes of heat and cold to which it is subject having obtained from a friend who had resided there during the whole of the preceding year a most accurate diary of the various changes of its climate Quote, from this it appeared that on the twentieth of october there was a heavy fall of snow which did not however remain long upon the ground 
the weather again became mild and there was no excessive cold until the middle of december from which period until the end of january fahrenheit's thermometer when exposed to the air at night never rose above zero and in the house at midday it was seldom above eighteen degrees january was by far the coldest month during it the water is described as becoming almost instantaneously solid in the tumblers upon the dining-table and the ink often freezing in the inkstand although the table was close to the fire for at least a fortnight not an egg was to be had all being split by the cold some bottles of wine froze although covered with straw and many of the copper ewers were split by the expansion of the water when frozen in them according to this diary the weather became comparatively mild towards the end of february but it appears that here as in england a lingering winter chills the lap of may for on the first of that month there was a heavy fall of snow with such cold that all promise of the spring was destroyed of the heat that ensued and the sudden and great changes to which to breeze is subject we had abundant proof in the month of june the range of the thermometer being usually within the twenty-four hours from fifty-six degrees to ninety-four degrees a difference of thirty-eight degrees the extreme heat of the summer causes most of the houses in tabriz to be built so as to admit the air during that season but the architects of persia fall short of their brethren in europe in forming places by which the cool air can be admitted in summer and excluded in winter this partly accounts for the above effects of cold but the city of tabriz and many more parts of Azerbaijan and still more of the neighbouring province of kurdistan though nowhere beyond the fortieth degree of latitude are from their great elevation subject to extreme cold in the latter country says sir john malcolm i found on the morning of the seventeenth of august ice half an inch thick on a basin of water standing in my tent strychnine a remedy for paralysis strychnine obtained in the greatest purity from the upastiente has been used successfully for this purpose one of dr bardsley's patients in lincolnshire who was experiencing the return of sensation in his paralyzed limbs under the use of strychnine asked if there was not something quick in the pills quick for alive being still in use in that part of england rapid manufacture many years ago the late sir john throckmorton sat down to dinner dressed in a coat which the same morning had been wool on the back of the sheep the animals were sheared the wool washed carded spun and woven the cloth was scoured fulled sheared dyed and dressed and then by the tailor's aid made into a coat between sunrise and the hour of seven when a party sat down to dinner with sir john as their chairman wearing the product of the active day discoveries anticipated from time immemorial the inhabitants of some distant regions have carried on their nocturnal or underground manufactures by natural gas obtained through a hollow reed thrust into the earth arriving at modern times navigation by the archimedes screw as a propeller through the means of steam attracted the notice of the scottish society of arts in eighteen forty 
but above twenty years previously an experiment with similar screws adapted to a boat on the lake lochan by mr whitlock a member of the society proved the efficiency of the invention though on a small scale in scotland an agricultural society was established in seventeen twenty three a threshing machine appeared in seventeen thirty five and a reaping machine in seventeen sixty five the first use of jesuit spark a casual circumstance it is said discovered that excellent febrifuge the jesuit's bark an indian in a delirious fever was left by his companions as incurable by the side of a river to quench his burning thirst while dying he naturally drank copious draughts of the water which having long imbibed the virtues of the bark that floated abundantly on the stream quickly dispersed the fever of the indian he returned to his friends and explained the nature of his remedy and the sick crowded about the margin of the holy stream as they imagined it till they had quite exhausted its virtues the sages of the tribe found out at length however whence the efficacy of the stream arose the indians discovered it first in sixteen forty to the lady of a viceroy of peru who by its use recovered of a dangerous fever and in sixteen forty three it was known at rome nice robbery m bachelier a french florist kept some beautiful species of the anemone to himself which he had procured from the east indies and he succeeded in withholding them for ten years from all who wished to possess them likewise a councillor of the parliament however one day paid him a visit while the anemones were in seed and in walking with him round the garden contrived to let his gown fall upon them by this means he swept off a good number of the seeds and his servant who had been apprised of the scheme dexterously wrapped up the gown and secured them any one must have been a sour moralist who should have considered this to be a breach of the eighth commandment female mathematician in the year seventeen thirty six the french academy of sciences proposed as a subject for a prize the propagation of heat when the marchioness of chatelet entered the list of competitors her work was not only an elegant account of all the properties of heat at that time known to natural philosophers but it was also remarkable for various proposals for experiments one among others which was afterwards followed up by herschel and from which he derived one of the chief gems in his brilliant scientific crown fourier's independence it was only occasionally that the real character of fourier the french philosopher showed itself it is strange said one day a certain very influential person belonging to the court of charles the tenth whom the servant joseph would not allow to get further than fourier's antechamber it is really strange that your master should be more difficult of access than a minister fourier overhearing this remark jumped out of bed to which he had been confined by indisposition opened the room door and facing the courtier exclaimed joseph tell the gentleman that if i were a minister i should receive everybody because such would be my duty as a private individual i receive whom i think fit and when i think fit the grandee disconcerted by the liveliness of the sally did not answer a word 
we must even suppose that from that instant he determined to visit nobody but ministers for the simple savant heard no more of him mechanical triumphs the direct and almost instant benefits of mechanical inventions to their originators have been thus eloquently illustrated in the edinburgh review Quote, contributing as they do to our most immediate pressing wants appealing to the eye by their magnitude and often by their grandeur and associated in many cases with the warmer impulses of humanity and personal safety the labours of the mechanist and engineer require a contemporary celebrity which is not vouchsafed to the results of scientific research or to the productions of literature and the fine arts the gigantic steam-vessel which expedites and facilitates the intercourse of nations the canal which unites two distant seas the bridge and the aqueduct which span an impassable valley the harbour and the breakwater which shelter our vessels of peace and of war the railway which hurries us along on the wings of mechanism and the light-beacon which throws its directing beams over the deep address themselves to the secular interests of every individual and obtain for the engineer who invented or who planned them a high and a well-merited popular reputation End, quote. End of section three